Why is venture capital important for innovation in life science? <laughs> I think that there can be various secret sources. I mean, the, the one, my recipe has got many ingredients, okay? Mm. One needs to look at the venture team and look at the experience of the people. And it's not only the years of experience, it's as well what they went through, what stories they went through in terms of investment, at which cycle of investment, uh, the, the scouting for interesting opportunities, the negotiation of term sheets and an investment, uh, the follow-ups up to the exit, and this several times. And as well, the failures. And listen to what they have to say about the failures. Are they open and humble enough to acknowledge the fact that, yes, okay, Big corporations strive to bring new solutions to their customers to help them solve the most pressing problems. To do so, the corporations need to be innovative. That's why companies like Apple, Google, Pfizer and similar players want to cooperate with startups and scale-ups globally. Such corporations strive to collaborate with top startups, invest in them, and sometimes acquire them to have access to their novel ideas. By innovating, the big players stay competitive, secure growth, and also help keep their employees motivated and curious. One of the best ways to foster innovation is creating venture capital funds. Venture funds collect capital to invest in high-risk, early-stage, innovative startups to help them grow up to the point where big corporations want to acquire them. This is episode number 70, and I am happy to have recorded this anniversary episode with an old friend of mine, Bruno Montanari from Serova Life Science. Bruno Montanari is a partner at Serova. He has a background in venture capital and in investment banking with a focus on the pharmaceutical, biotechnology, and medical device industries. Bruno graduated in 1998 with a PhD from a university in Paris and in the same year completed a master's degree in strategic management. Prior to joining the firm in 2017, Bruno was a partner at Omnis Capital in Paris in charge of life sciences investments for the venture capital team. His previous venture capital experience was at Atlas Venture in Paris and London and CDP Capital in Paris and Montreal. He started his career in 1999 in London in the healthcare teams of the investment banking divisions of Deutsche Bank and later Merrill Lynch. Bruno brings a wealth of experience and network, particularly in continental Europe, where he is based. Bruno sits on the boards of Storm Therapeutics and Coaf Therapeutics. In this episode, we will discuss questions like, why is venture capital important for innovation in life science? What is the secret source of venture capital? Some nice and insightful venture capital success stories. What is the current situation of venture capital in Europe? And much, much more. Enjoy the show. Bruno, it's good to see you again. How are you doing? Good. And thanks for inviting me, Christian. Very happy to be, to be there with you and, uh, and the people in the audience. I'm happy to have you here. Bruno, let's talk a little bit about venture capital and innovation. Can you give a little bit of an explanation what venture capital is and uh, since when are you in this industry? Sure, sure. So venture capital, I mean, people date it back to the 70s and some others even earlier than that. Um, basically, it is um, 
a way, and I would call it an institutional way, because it's going through the creation of funds and investment of the money from those funds to support innovation. And uh, venture capital is more about, I would say, early stage innovation, R&D type companies in different sectors. Um, and um, you have different type of, of venture capital funds. Um, I would say that the two main ones are the classic um close-ended venture capital funds where you have, once you raise money, uh, a period of five years to complete your investments and build your portfolio of, uh, of companies. Uh, and then uh, this is followed by another five years that give you time to pursue the divestments and return the money to, to the investors with Obviously, this is the, the end goal, um, a very good um, return on investment. Sometimes those funds can be prolonged by one or two additional years if need be. And the other, I would say, classic type of funds that we see a lot and increasingly for the last years in our business uh, are the corporate venture funds. Mm -hmm. So similar approach, supporting innovation, R&D type companies, so largely unprofitable companies. Um, but uh, this time via a vehicle that has been created by a corporate uh, from a given sector. So obviously we're in life sciences at Zeroba. So we're thinking about pharmaceutical and medical devices corporations that create this venture fund, internal mm -hmm. venture funds where they allocate money. And this is more open-ended. I mean, we can call them as well evergreen, and uh, they have obviously more time in the, in the horizon to do various investments and consider an exit out of them. And so as far as I'm concerned, I've been doing that now for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. Time flies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is true. Time flies, especially in the last uh, uh, 10 years, uh, I guess innovation really took off. And uh, with all the changes coming to the world, uh, life is getting more and more excited. Uh, to uh, keep up to you, I also did a little bit of research before our recording in venture capital. And uh, what you said that uh, venture capital started in the 70s. Um, I didn't know that. I always thought it's a little bit older. But uh, it seems that the first investments were in company like uh, Apple, Microsoft, uh, Genentech. Uh, I think also Gilead took up some venture capital. And it didn't really look very exciting to me when I was a student at uh, the university. I thought just, okay, it's another investor putting money into a company. So where is the difference here? And during the research, I found then also that in 1995, the term uh, disruptive technology and disruptive innovation was coined by an author from the Harvard Business School. And I asked myself the question, why is it really necessary uh, for innovation to have venture capital uh, on the field? Aren't there enough investment models already on the market? So it, it, I would say that it all depends about what, how you define innovation. Mm -hmm. I mean, in our businesses, uh, meaning finding new drugs and new medical devices, this is a quite long, complex um, process and it costs a lot. It is very capital intensive and it is this capital intensity that necessitates uh, large sources of funding and an obvious one is venture capital. So it doesn't mean that 
innovation is only supported by venture capital. I mean, you can find innovation in different areas and different forms, but what we're doing and what um, colleagues that are not in the life sciences uh, sector, but tech sector are doing can be very capital intensive. And so this is where the venture capital play a key role in financing this uh, this type of innovation. When we talk about capital intensive, can you give a bit of an outlook uh, what that means? Uh, are we talking about uh, a few thousand euros or are we going uh, a little bit higher? <laughs> no, I, I would say it's... Uh, Tens of million of euros, if not no, if not hundreds of million of euros. But one needs to consider the the time window for an investment from a VC fund, uh, because uh, something which is not necessarily obvious to people which are not into this field is the fact that uh, we are not going to wait for this new drug candidate or new medical device to be necessary on the market and for a company to become profitable before we exit. And so the time frame where we support this company is from company creation to, let's say, some kind of clinical stage, mm -hmm. uh, early, mid, or even late stage now, depending on the area. And this is where you have a given amount of money. I mean, it's difficult to, to say ballpark how much because obviously from one treatment modality and one sector, it might differ. But I would say that generally companies would need to raise, let's say, anywhere between 50 and 100 or more before you can come to um, what we call an exit, which is either the acquisition of the startup we invested in, either an IPO. And uh, this money actually can sometimes not come only from VC firms. It can be complemented with partnerships with corporates, whereby there is a licensing deal and the corporates will provide what we call upfront money and then milestone payments in exchange of some rights to a technology or to a program. And this is this is very well um, seen by by the startups as much as we as investors because we call this non-dilutive money. It's it's cash coming into the bank of the company and not cash in exchange of shares, which would dilute the shareholders. Mm -hmm. You see, on top of the validation and as well tapping into the expertise of those large corporations that can be very helpful to be sometimes more cognizant and efficient in pursuing the technology and the programs. When I think about survival of technology, um, I mean, looking at the value chain, so yeah. for example, uh, in life science, we have the universities and research organizations, uh, to put it uh, really bluntly. I know there's more on the field, but let's just stay with that. Um, who invest in innovation, basically, mm -hmm. initially, and they produce publications and patents. Yes. And on the other hand of the value chain, we have the big corporations like Pfizer, for example, who uh, gained some fame with the latest development in mRNA vaccines. Also, mm -hmm. Moderna would say, meanwhile, they also would consider them rather big. Um, Gilead, Roche, and all the big names. Um, the question that I have to you is, and I would like to hear your opinion on that, why don't big corporation not go directly to research organizations and just license uh, everything out of the university into the organization and bring that up to speed into the market. So, uh, so actually they, they do 
perform a lot of scouting mm. and uh, we investors come across them as much as our startups actually um, either at conferences or either on the field uh, meeting sometimes the same people and the same incubators accelerators or, or research uh, or organizations but um, uh, I think that one can do it all okay and um, it's all about it's all about dedication and focus and those large corporations have um, I would say big uh, stakes um, which is always to look at the bottom line and try to fill the pipeline maybe on a short and midterm basis and those research um, uh, collaborations with universities usually are very very early stage so they do clearly sign some of those but I mean it's not necessarily their bread and butter uh, it's not their focus and as well they need to be very picky uh, in in focusing on on the, on the right uh, programs or approach that they really need to complement what they have internally opposite to that uh, you've got a startup backed by venture capital funds, which life and death will depend upon a given technology or maybe one or two programs that might come from those university and research centers. And so it will be obviously a different way of proceeding in terms of attention and execution as well. Uh, and I think this is why probably, um, and I, one would have to check the data, but why why I think it's it's a lot of startups backed by VCs that uh, usually come out of this research and uh, are the best to value this innovation uh, up to a point where then the large corporation will be probably more comfortable and more savvy as well to take them on board and bring them to the next step. So you see, it's always horses for courses. Upon the lifetime of a project, you need dedicated people to be able to dig in and find the golden the nuggets if you want sometimes you really need to polish hard to see the gold huh? because and this is one of the issue um, it's it's sometimes hard for the tech transfer office to um, to really be able to fully value what the labs have and to be able to in a way sell a good story to the outside world to attract people to invest into those uh, research programs and uh, and so yeah you, you need this this dedication and then it's about execution capabilities and and the level of risk obviously is higher at a very early stage um, and so you need the right the right people who have the guts and the strong hearts to go with something which is super new um, really what we call cutting edge where probably no one really explored that uh, and uh, have uh, have the guts to say, okay, let's put a few millions to not only confirm the data that we know, but then to take it to the next steps and make something really good out of it. And we always need to keep uh, as well the fact that it's not all about the money, all about a project. In life sciences, uh, at the end of the day, we're talking about patients. And even if many of, of us among us investors don't see the patients, okay, because we're not coming necessarily all from a medical background, nor are we going to uh, visit patients to better know some, some pathologies, but we, we have that in mind. I mean, if you succeed, you will be able not only to improve the quality of life, but 
put it plainly, to save lives. And uh, and I think this is as well a clear dedication in a startup. Uh, so the, the focus is very intense, and many many people, many many employees and per- people are, have that in mind. Sometimes you will find even founders that are deeply related to the cause because they or some family members suffers or have suffered or even died of a given pathology that they want to tackle. And this is really a, a different ambition and, and motive to make things succeed. I completely agree to what you say. I think the uh, amazing thing in the pharma or life science industry is that the customer at the end of the day is not only someone who buys a product like in other industries, but uh, the technologies really have an impact to, as you said, uh, in the best case, to help uh, patients survive and uh, or increase the quality of their lives. And this is a great thing. Um, but part of this game always is capital. As you said, uh, it takes sometimes a few hundred million, if not billion, uh, some billion, uh, to bring a product to the market. I read the statistics lately that said that meanwhile, to bring a new uh therapy to the market it takes about three to four billion dollars so it's something that um i think no founder can bring up themselves except i know it's um, true it's true but one has to look into this because i mean let's face it there's a bit of of politics involved here with such big numbers that are always inflated and ever mm -hmm. increasing um, I, I came across this kind of stats for, well, actually, since I started this business and even before, uh, to realize quickly that very often you have the cost of failure included mm -hmm. in it. Because, I mean, let's just for illustration, because this is not the real data. And again, the data is very diverse depending on the therapeutic area indication you're going to go after. But let's say you have one project. Uh, out of 100 that will make it to market, you see? And so you've got to take into account all the efforts and money invested in the, into the 99 others uh, that unfortunately fail at some point, but help mm -hmm. you as well to get this one across the finish line. Okay, so it might not be 1%, of course, but it's just for illustration. So this is why there is a big, big number. But clearly, clearly it's very costly. I mean, I, I mentioned the fact that as a VC, uh, we think that companies have to raise 50, 100 or more uh, before becoming, I would say, uh, a good um, target for acquisition or IPO. Mm. But it's true that when you think about all the efforts and money dedicated since the lab time at university up to market approval and beyond, because you've got all the commercial efforts as well, yes, it is in the hundreds and hundreds of millions, and in some cases, even billions. Let's say, you, you mentioned an interesting term, uh, failure. Yeah. Um, I think um, nobody plans to fail initially. So everybody wants to be successful as a startup, uh, as a starting company. Uh, but failure happens. I mean, uh, what is your opinion why some, some things don't hit the market? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today.
Alors, there, there are various reasons. I would say that the best reason, and you will understand why I say the best reason, is when, after trying to really understand the biology and making a bet that uh, your new drug uh, or new devices will address a given pathway or target or mechanism of action that you really believe into it, well, actually, biology will bring some new features to this original hypothesis. And you will figure out uh, over time that actually not all patients, obviously, are the same, will react the same. And so, I mean, at the end of the day, if the investment hypothesis around biology um, is not is not proven, well, so be it. But the important thing is that uh, at the origin, your investment thesis was sound, backed by experts, key opinion leaders that really believed into it, but the proof is in the pudding. I mean, we're talking about innovation. So it's not that you can look back and say, oh, it worked before. So I know that you have all chances that it will work again. Well, actually, no, you don't know, clearly, uh, unless you are into some incremental innovation to make some things a bit better. But no, we're talking real innovation here, okay? Something that will dramatically change the way patients are being treated uh, or even diagnosed and monitored. Um, and so so this is, I would say, one main reason, and I would qualify it as the best reason, failure, okay? Um, then you have all the reasons. All the reasons can be competition. I mean, um, to put it simply, today, given the amount of money and new company creations and new ideas generated every day, uh, as soon as you invest into a company, the next day you have competition emerging. Of course, mm -hmm. I'm pushing it a bit, but just to say how competitive it became. Uh, and it's great at the end of the day because you cannot rest on your laurels, you know, and uh, just have a nice cup of tea every two hours and think that, okay, you have time. No, you need to really be focused and up to speed uh, on, on the program you want to, to pursue. Um, and so sometimes competition can come up with something that that is better and so you need to reinvent yourself maybe restart um, and this is where partly failures can can happen and then the worst of the failures is about bad execution mm -hmm. okay let's face it and bad executions means unfortunately a management team which is not up to speed, uh, with regard to how to best position a technology or program, not up to speed into the best study design uh, to really prove their case. Um, and sometimes it can come as well from governance. Okay. And it's partly execution as well. And when I mean governance, is that you've got a um, board of directors with very different people there. And sometimes the agendas are not aligned, the vision are not, are not aligned either. And it creates sometimes confusion, lack of decision-making, and you can you can suffer a lot from that as well. So you see, you have a variety of failures, and, and this is where, uh, but probably we'll speak about that maybe later on, but this is where experience is fundamental because experience means avoiding mistakes that you've seen and experienced before, but as well, making sure that you've got the right mindset around the table with people that can work together, with whom there is alchemy, because they are going to be inevitably tough times to go through. And we will need to collectively think in, uh, in the best manner 
without throwing turds at each other and without wanting to be absolutely right compared to others, but really raise the right questions, bring the right expertise, open the book of relationship that we have to help uh, and to go through those tough moments. And so the human aspects of it, for me, is actually critical. Sometimes even more critical than the science and the data, you see. And I have this um, this say where um, you can get it wrong and it's going to be like inverse alchemy. You have gold in the wrong hands and you turn that into lead. So you need to be super careful about the human aspects in any venture at any stage of the development of a company. That's absolutely true. I heard uh, once another, another saying, they said, uh, an A team with a P technology um, will always win and uh, a B team with an A technology has a high chance of uh, of failing just because of the human factor, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So uh, so you mentioned uh, expertise and mindset, uh, two building blocks that venture capital can help with. Uh, yeah. When I look on the political scale, when we talk about Europe, for example, I, I very often heard Uh, hear from several politicians that Europe should become the startup continent or several countries state. Our country is uh, this uh, right for startups. How can venture capital help on this mission? So yeah, it's true that we're hearing about startup nation and it's a very nice buzzword that a lot of politicians uh, like because it make, make them look modern and it's always people, you know, thinking about the same and tapping themselves in the back and, and throwing medals at each other and good words. Well, that's nice. I mean, at the end of the day, it's needed somehow. But um, I'm a kind of more down-to-earth and, and a humble person, and I need to think hard. And it's like a doctor, actually. To, to address a situation and a disorder, you need to get the right diagnosis, because otherwise you're going to miss the, the, the treatment, if there is a treatment. And, and here... Um, I mean, we need to to see how critical innovation and startup is in our economy, and uh, how to how to help on that. So, I mean, if if we look back at this COVID crisis, it's something interesting. I mean, people realize that hey, entire industries are not there anymore in Europe or even in the states. I mean, we we let them go to emerging countries. And actually, it has been a trend for decades, you know, where we thought, let's focus more on competitive industries with highly qualified jobs, high margins, and high barrier to entry, uh, because this is where the future lies. And let go the, I would call that the classic old-fashioned industries, because of lack of competitiveness, um, labor costs, which would be too high compared to emerging countries well. Fair enough, but I think we've seen the limit of that with the COVID-19 crisis, clearly. Um, and so uh, when I say that we need to, 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 be, to be humble, it's true that innovation is super important, and I'm going to, to come back to that. But let's not forget that um, outside of innovation, the real world is composed of many different industries, which are key uh, in their societal aspects and making sure that our countries can stand up. But so now let's focus back on, on, uh, on innovation. Um, so behind the startup nation buzzword, what does it mean? It's true that um, it's a highly competitive world out there, okay? And um, actually the large corporations and some of them in the past, which were the leaders just faded away, sometimes disappeared uh, because they, they were just too lenient 
with a very nice market share, uh, um, some nice cows they could milk and they thought they could make it forever. And all of a sudden, innovation came up and totally changed the picture in terms of business model, in terms of products, solutions, uh, and and they, they lost it, okay? And this is where innovation becomes critical because you don't want to have a country or even a, a continent or a political organization like the European Union to miss on, on innovation and uh, clearly not be able to have uh, in Europe uh, maybe an Amazon, a Google, a Facebook, or a LinkedIn. Okay, and similarly, I could talk about many pharma, large pharma or large device companies that are now more in the US than in Europe, and even our old. Um, Pharma and device industries have been consolidating, and sometimes in Europe there are R&D research centers, and not even even more in Europe. It is on the east coast, on the west coast of the US. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there is something fundamental that needs to be tackled, which is how to not only keep innovation here in Europe, but how to nurture it to make sure that tomorrow's leaders are now emerging, thanks to this support. And it can be financial support, but there is more support than finance, obviously. Okay, uh, and this is where venture capital again play a key role in it. Um, so, so we are clearly uh, keen in every country in Europe to raise um, the, the, what is at stake, meaning this uh, this uh, ecosystem of startups, and uh, and actually we're facing uh, an issue I think, uh, which is not the lack of good science. Okay, and good scientists we've got great science and great ideas, uh, but it is still, I think, what's what might be missing is two things, is enough people able to value that innovation properly and put that on track, okay? Um, and then, uh, and we have in part uh, trying to answer this uh, right now in a few countries in Europe, how to make sure that those companies are not dried out of cash too early and getting acquired by foreign countries and therefore not being in Europe anymore as a future European leaders. And this is where what we call the late stage VC financing slash growth capital comes in the picture. Uh, but again, it's not all about, about the money, but surely it will help keeping those emerging companies in Europe growing them, and they can go globally, but still being headquarters in Europe in in different fields, including uh, the life sciences field. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Uh, interesting parts that you were were mentioning here. Uh, it, it reminded me of the 90s of Europe when uh, I was at the university. 
And back then, I mean, the world in Europe was extremely great because the automotive industry was winning globally. Uh, just think about the German trademarks, uh, Volkswagen, Mercedes, BMW, also the mobile industry. It was uh, with this uh, dot-com bubble, I think the mobile industry, the European mobile industry conquered the world, practically speaking. And then in 2006, um, a nerd in the United States, Steve Jobs, reinvented the entire mobile industry. So this is what you mentioned, disrupting, disrupting innovation and why it's uh, uh, important to have startups here in Europe. For me, the, still the best story that exemplifies how a single company can wipe out an entire industry in a continent uh, if the continent does not innovate. And uh, yeah. this is um, mobile industry, iPhone, the best example. Now I think everybody has an iPhone or Samsung phone, which comes from Asia here in Europe and the old trademarks like uh, Nokia, Ericsson, Siemens that were there until uh, the first, I would say mid of the first decade of uh, uh, this century are gone. They are not. They are not. They are not there uh, anymore. And it creates even geopolitical issues. I mean, do you want your country to be dependent on data being stored uh, into another country? Okay, mm -hmm. data about your citizens or the customers of the, the companies of your country. Do you want your citizens to be dependent upon drugs and devices which are largely produced outside of your country? Um, I mean, there, there are there are key questions that that one needs to 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 face and answer clearly yeah absolutely I mean, when you mentioned data i think uh most of the data is uh most likely stored in the united states so yeah. or by by us companies because in europe we don't have that the question that pops up in my mind while we are speaking is um i mean it's clear we need venture capital to move innovation forward you mentioned uh this mindset thing and to me is what's what's missing on university is this entrepreneurship mindset and it uh, needs a very specialized uh, type of personality who on one hand understands the industry and the structure they need to build an innovation towards to but on the other hand also needs to understand the creativity at the universities and must have the talent to unite these both mindsets uh, in it's, the it's a tough job but i think i think it's like uh, it's like any two worlds that has to do business together in the value chain, it's it's a first about communication. Mm -hmm. And 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 uh, I must say that I've seen the bads and the goods, and actually the better over, over the years, where those different parties better communicate. Okay. So obviously not in all institutions, and it's not good in all institutions, but um everyone is, is trying to work hard to to get to that level. I mean, the, the issue is that um it, it becomes a bit of a rare breed to find this type of people that would accept um, a, a job in a tech transfer office to do that great valuation work, while maybe they could be offered a, a very nice position uh, in a startup or in the industry, you see. Mm. And so um, probably there is some reflection to be done about the, the profile you want to, uh, to attract um, and how to, to value those profiles, uh, either financially or in any other in any other way, to to make sure that you've, you've got this kind of expertise that will really help value what we have in research centers and bringing different worlds together to make sure that this innovation is not left on the shelf or just damaged by um, by people that are, are not doing things rightly. 
clearly. But yeah. but I can tell you it's improving because mm. uh, because it's it's very much in the open. And again, people talk a lot and try to figure out what the best process, ideas, way of doing things are. Um, so we, we, we're getting there. We're getting there. But then there is maybe a bit of a different, again, talking about mindset, it's about entrepreneurship. And... Um, and uh, the, the business sense, I mean, uh, it's, it sounds uh, a bit opening, uh, open doors, but it is what it is. It's true that um, U.S. mentality is always very much business oriented, okay? And sometimes, sometimes, more than often um, in Europe, it's, you have different considerations. So you don't have the same stamina, the same, uh, the same acumen, the same move to get things done. Uh, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, I mean we are competing anyways on global scale, so we, we yeah. need to we need to get there. There's no. And you've other got way. collaborations as well between yeah. European institutions and uh, and US or even Chinese institutions. Um, so um, now there there are things that are really moving in the right direction. But obviously, it's there are there are economics at stake, financials at stake. So it's all a matter of making sure that um, people get a share of the pie in such collaboration um, and then it, it it will be fine. Yeah, I don't to get the share of the Baidoq uh, found also other companies. I think this is more common in the United States than in Europe uh, to participate also the people in the organizations. Uh, to me, when I look back five, six years, it was always clear that uh, human resources need development and uh, the organizations that help with developing young entrepreneurs, young in the sense of first-time startups or first-time starting a company or venture capitalists. And when I look back to 2015, it was the first time that I realized that compared to the United States, there is very few venture capital here in Europe. How do you see the situation of venture capital currently in Europe uh, after the pandemic or during the pandemic? Alors, the, the, the comparison between the States and, and Europe remains the same. Um, at the end of the day, you've got more funds, more money uh, and more investment done in, uh, in the US compared to Europe. I mean, in my sector... It's, it's very obvious. I mean, if we take different database and source of information, so maybe the figures slightly differ, but the ratio is, is about the same. Uh, for last year, it was slightly less than $9 billion of VC investment in life sciences in Europe. Um, and in the US, it was, I think, $36 billion. So you see an order of magnitude more in the US. And it means what? It means, obviously, more projects financed, more startups financed. Uh, and so if one thinks just by, by statistics, eventually you will have more success stories out of the US than for Europe, just based on a numbers game. Okay, mm. Then one might say, hey, yes, but and it's true. Uh, everything costs more in the US. It's true. Mm. Very true. It can cost two, if not three times more in terms of equipment, salaries, uh, lawyers, I mean, you, you name it, when you are in, in the US. So it requires more investment behind. But guess what? Just the US is a bigger market somehow for drugs and devices and, and in a way easier to access because it's one country uh, with one language and one approval process and things like that compared to Europe where you can have dissimilarities and, and, and things to, to, to go through. Um, so this, this gap exists. 
it exists for ages since the beginning, and I think it will continue to exist. Um, there, there is a, there is another gap, which is um, which is as well at the end of the food chain, I would call it, uh, which is um, IPO, mm-hmm. but as well somehow M and A. Uh, maybe we'll touch upon this later on, but it's true that um, it's a more sane IPO environment in the US, more capable of attracting startups and give them more financial means for the ambitions compared to what we have in Europe. So this is as well something where we need to work on. Um, so I, it's, it's not new. People are trying to improve things, but maybe we, we, we'll get back on this. <laughs> Yeah, for me it was new a couple of years ago. So maybe it's it's an old it's an old well known yeah. problem. I hear it very often uh, currently since I start talking with people. Um, if, if I may, Christian, I just want to say that on the entrepreneurship, I mean, first you need uh, an industry in Europe, okay, a pharma and device industry, out of which innovation can come from actually, mm-hmm. but as well people with experience that will be the founders or co-founders of startups focused on a given technology program device that will bring that to the next step with more attention and focus than the big guys would ever have put onto it. Okay. So we need to keep the big guys in Europe. Okay. Because this is as well a pool of experienced people. And then in terms of entrepreneur and startups, I mean, we have had now a few generation of those. And interestingly enough, as much as some biotech and device companies became bigger and became themselves the next acquirers, okay, after starting nimble and growing, uh, you've got from this first generation of entrepreneurs, people having worked closely to those guys with successes, but as well with failures, because you learn from failures. And this is something that we really need to keep in mind in Europe. Failures is not the end of it. As long as you understand why and you don't repeat it, it's it's great in terms of experience to get to the next step with another opportunity. And so you see a lot of those people coming from, I would say, all names in, in European biotech, successful ones usually, that are now CEO of companies, sometimes two or three times CEO of companies. So you see, we are we have entered, I think, into this virtuous cycle Hopefully. in Europe, <laughs> which US experienced a long time ago. But again, the US, I, I think, has been largely pulled up with a very attractive and welcoming capital market, which has been lacking for too long in Europe. And this is something we really need to tackle. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. I completely get to what you say. Failure is the way to mastery. I started playing golf last year and I just can say, man, I suck. <laughs> so it's just such a difficult sport. But uh, my teacher said, the pro said, uh, you need 
every swing that fails to understand how that game works. And uh, you need to train. And I think entrepreneurship is pretty much the same. You not only need the success stories, you also need the stories about failure. When I look at the Austrian or the Viennese community and life science society, how this evolved since 2006, Every company that failed uh, was the breeding ground for three new companies. So people just move on, try the next thing, as long as they are allowed to legally and not uh, pushed down or in a, in, a, in a very restrained by, by legal restrictions. So I think what you say that we must understand that even when a company fails is a good thing for society, that people learn something and can move on and uh, try the next best thing is very important that uh, the community evolves. What I didn't understand in the last uh, 15 years uh, was um, the listings that happened in the life science industry. When I think about BioNTech, BioNTech raised money in Europe, uh, got, I think, one family office in that mm -hmm. supported the company up uh, to the stage where they could starting thinking about commercializing it. And then they made a decision to get listed on the NASDAQ. I saw the same here in Austria with Nabriva, for example. Nabriva yeah. got a good start, got uh, 40 million venture capital in 2006, uh, upped it a couple of times, even during the crisis from 2008 onwards, and then decided to get listed on the NASDAQ. Ukipo Pharma, also a company here in Austria, same decision. Why is that? So this is where we, we, we're going to talk a bit about the, the stock market. I mean, What exists in the US and still is missing largely in Europe um, is, is uh, one stock market. Okay, in the US, mm -hmm. we've got NASDAQ. And so the investors will go on NASDAQ to be able to, uh, I would call it bet, but an educated bet uh, most of the time. And I'll come back on that again. Um, on, on those companies that are raising funds through an IPO because an IPO is not an exit. It's raising funds, okay, to provide more fuel, more cash to the programs and the technology. And so you've got very savvy, specialized investors in this, in this U.S. market that can understand what a company is doing. And they understand as well, they can anticipate the timing, uh, how long it will take to deliver the next inflection points mm -hmm. and the next key data set. And, and if you are faced with generalist investors, not specialized investors that are not really understanding what you're doing, well, first of all, it might be difficult to attract them as investors in an IPO unless they want to get a bit of a hype because they have a, a, a kind of pocket allocated to anything else than the classic industries. Okay, fair enough. But as soon as there are maybe gray or bad news, they will fly away. Okay, so um, th this is a bit of an issue. This is why you need savvy, specialized investors, and sometimes even before IPO to fully support the IPO. This, this, the, the nickname for those are, is a crossover, meaning investor that will come before IPO, and with uh, the the mentality that the philosophy that they will invest at IPO time as well to make sure the IPO comes through and that the company can move to the, to the next steps. We still lack this in Europe. And in Europe, you've got different markets. Okay, you've got London Stock Exchange, you've got alternative investment market, you've got your own Paris, you know, next Amsterdam, you know, Express Sales, you name it. Okay, and so this is a bit of an issue in Europe to make sure you can attract not only savvy investors, specialized investors, which are few and far between in Europe, but as well that you attract enough of them in one same market where they can all really... Um, 
put put some money. So there, there is this issue, which is a structural issue that we need to address on the stock market in Europe. And and so you have faced to that, either you've got businesses which are innovative business, but which might need less money and who are okay to maybe raise less uh, at a lesser valuation somehow on a European stock exchange. But if you need to raise big money at IPO and with follow-ups, mm-hmm. uh, and when you want to reach generous enough valuations and as well liquidity, meaning trading of shares, well, guess what? I mean, the facts, the data is there. You're better off going on NASDAQ than on Europe. Okay, but for European company, you need, I think, to anticipate the fact that you need to be over the crowd and you will have U.S. companies wanting to list as well on the U.S. NASDAQ. And guess what? They've got U.S. investors. Uh, their name is already known to the IPO investors. Um, so the dynamic is easier for those U.S. companies. And this is where I strongly believe that venture capital in Europe can take the best of the of the two worlds. And this is what that Seroba uh, we've been doing and we will still push mm. in, in doing, which is, okay, we've got great science. We've got breeds of entrepreneurs that are really up to it now in Europe. But at some point, let's get more visible in the US and let's access the pool of talents and money available in the US. But it's all about the timing. You you need to be to avoid being dogmatic and make sure that when it is really needed, you get there. And um, else you might have a two-step process where one might start listing in Europe, but then list into NASDAQ as well, just to become more aware of what is a public company, a board and the governance, which needs to change as well. And once they are comfortable, they say, okay, now we can go to NASDAQ because we're fully ready, you see. But again, this is a major distinct difference between US and Europe. And, and as I said, I strongly believe that um, the US market has, has been pulled up in a favorable way with a very nice and generous um, IPO market, which we have been lacking in Europe. And this is really something we need to, to tackle because it's not only about um, allocating resources in company creation and the early stage financing. Uh, if we want to keep those champions in Europe, it is late stage financing, which includes as well a good IPO market. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, coming from the corporate side, what should you do as an entrepreneur when you don't find sufficient investment capital in later stages here in Europe? You have to go somewhere. Yes. You, can't, you can't stop the company. And, and this okay. is why a lot, a lot of countries... Um, I'm talking about my country, France, but but others as well, have made a big push into later stage slash growth capital funds um, to avoid seeing those uh, companies going too early, either to foreign investors, but worse, being acquired too early by, by foreign companies. And so this is one way. But again, it is not the recipe, uh, and you need to address a few a few other things as well. I think the dynamics in the United States interesting. For example, Cathy Woods Arc funds uh, that are also investing heavily in listed companies, even when they don't have a, what call it a validated business model already. So companies that uh, are clearly have negative operative cash flows. Hmm. So they just look, she's just with her team, she just looks at uh, how innovative the companies are and if they can disrupt an industry and just picks them up. And something like that, for example, in my opinion, is missing in Europe. So these follow-on investors who also take up risks after after the IPO. 
Uh, probably, but I would prefer having specialized investors, <laughs> not, people, <laughs> not people playing the statistic, because again, uh, you, you need stability on the investor basis. You need, mm-hmm. you need people, investors to understand what it will take and, and be there when there needs to be a follow-on investment after the IPO, you see? Yeah. Um, so, okay, that's, that's interesting, but... Now it wouldn't be my favorite approach, I would say. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Let's talk a little bit. Let's stay in Europe uh, yeah. for a while and talk about the um, situation. How to invest in early stage companies? I mean, I read also on the internet uh, figures from the United States. I don't have it for Europe. Um, articles say that uh, 70 trillion dollars are handed down from the boomer generation to millennials. So basically they inherit the money because the old generation <laughs> just passes away. And let's just assume that someone gets a hundred billion on their bank account and uh, can do something with that money. Uh, wouldn't it be logical to start directly investing in startup companies? I mean, we all heard the hero stories, the 100,000 X something uh, return on investment when you just pick the right number. What yeah. is the rationale for those people to not directly go into the early stage environment, uh, but to invest in a venture fund? So, I mean, you, you, I mean, everyone is free and I'm a liberal at heart, so they can do whatever they want with, with the money they have, either inherited or earned. That's not too much of my business. But if I had a piece of advice, um, it would be to think hard about if, if they understand the drivers of a market, the unique selling points of a technological program, what it takes in terms of skills, competencies, uh, and the various complex regulatory steps to go through um, before investing directly. Because when you don't know Well, an industry as complex and regulated as life sciences, you are prone to surprises and sometimes not the best surprises. Okay. Um, so it's not only a matter of being able or not to understand the data, the science, the biology. I mean, that with time and good mentors, you can get there, but it's really to have a good appreciation of the quality of, of a business of what is being developed in terms of research and development, and as, if not even more importantly, the quality of the team you're going to bet on. Because unless it's kind of friends and families that are creating a startups and, okay, it sounds fantastic, you're going to serve the world, and guess what, it's my cousin or an old-time friend, I'll put some money onto him. Okay, fair enough. But if you don't know the guys, uh, that's tricky because um, at the end of the day, as I said before during that podcast, The human factor is essential, essential. So this is where um, the, there is a, an arbitrage to be made between investing directly into one company among hundreds of others, sometimes dozens in the same area, you know, trying to second guess if these are really, this is really innovative, really cutting edge, if they're going to make it, um, not understanding competition and positioning, for example. So there's an arbitrage between this And investing into a venture capital fund, okay? And actually, there are, there are a lot of high net worth and family office that uh, can do both depending on the, on the sector and the maturity of the company. But um, talking to, to now some, if not many of them, they, they understand how complex R&D is, how risky it is. 
and to optimize the chances of success and diversify the risk as well, they might be better off investing into one or more, actually, venture capital funds, you know, with different investment thesis, even in one same sector, like life sciences, which is pretty broad, actually. Um, and, and learning from that with the team of the venture capital fund. But it's not to say that they cannot as well, maybe from time to time, co-invest alongside the fund into those investing companies. It can happen, okay? They can be, they can be welcomed. So um, this, this arbitrage is something that is really needed uh, in terms of, of hard thinking uh, to make sure that the money you have in a way is not going to be wasted on an opportunity which is not really one and on people which are not really, I would say, either experienced or worst, not trustful. Let's dive a little bit deeper into the uh, magic of venture capital. What is the secret sauce of a venture capital fund that they could offer to family offices and uh, business angel? Uh, so huh. <laughs> I think that there can be various secret sauces. I mean, the, the one, my recipe has got many ingredients, okay? Mm. Uh, but I think you one needs to look at the venture team and look at the experience of the people. And it's not only the years of experience, it's as well what they went through, what stories they went through in terms of investment, at which cycle of investment, uh, the, the scouting for interesting opportunities, the negotiation of term sheets and an investment, uh, the follow-ups up to the exit, and this several times. And as well, the failures. And listen to what they have to say about the failures. Are they open and humble enough to acknowledge the fact that, yes, okay, Uh, the investment thesis originally might have changed or then they might have been wrong and how they learn from that. This is very important. And so this is, this is experience and experience is as well about the network, the people you met over time, uh, how you were able to learn from each other and with whom you want to do business. I mean, after 20 years of, of experience in VC, I can tell you the people that are, like-minded that I like and they like to work with me as well. Uh, and so it's not only the funds, it's the people inside the funds. And it's very important because this again, this alchemy needed at the governance level, at the board level with the managers, okay? So the human factor is super important and you need to see as well, it's part of the ingredients and the secret sauce. You need to have a complementarity in, in, in the team, in their members. It cannot be just a collection of individuals, Okay, it needs to be people coming from different backgrounds with different experience, different networks. Uh, because if you've got McKinsey people very, very well in terms of intelligence, all the rest the same, you know, having gone through the best case studies and the best uh, uh, universities and schools uh, in, in the US and Europe. Well, if they turn at the end of the day to think the same, it might not lead you necessarily to, to the best direction. And sometimes it will lead you into a wall. And, and if you have clones and they face failure, they might not be able to understand why and, and just be able to, to do uh, better deals afterwards. And complementarity is very key. But again, you have to get over a mere collection of individuals. It needs to be a real partnership. People that are not there to take the money for themselves, for their own investments, and to take the light 
okay? It's people that need to understand that it's collective and that you bring to the table for your colleagues in a VC firm, but as well for all the portfolio, all the investment made, your experience and your network, okay? And, and it's, I mean, having gone through that in various funds and knowing other funds, I can tell you that Roba is one of a rare breed where we have this mentality. It is Seroba first, it is partnership first, it is companies first. And I'm helping the portfolio companies of my colleagues by putting them in touch with relevant people and by sometimes helping with my own experience and my own suggestions as much as they do for me. Because at the end of the day, it's collective success. This is what we want to, to aim to. And this is, this is easier said than done. You need to have the right mentality and you need to have the right economics as well. Um, so, yeah, yeah, this is where uh, you need to find the right fit. It's like a wedding in a way, you know. Not only you need to fall in love somehow at the beginning and to be aligned and being able to live together, but you need to go along, along the journey together as well with various turns and bumpy roads from time to time. Very important. Very important. That's true. And so, cool. and so then it's, it's access to a quality deal flow. But again, this is, this is a network, the experience, okay? And, and people being able to understand what's key in a given indication and an area to spot the right startups, the right approach, and as well, somehow educate the colleagues about why this is a great opportunity, you know? Not imposing anything, <laughs> but explaining and bringing the experts as well to second what the initial thoughts are. So it's, it's human nature, you see, once again. <laughs> I completely agree. I mean, the team is important. And I think with Zoroba, you have uh, 20 years. Or is it the uh, first one was Zoroba founded? Yeah, Zoroba was the first ever licenses dedicated VC fund in Ireland. And it, and the first fund fund one was uh, early 2002. So yes, it's it's 20 years now. And uh, Zoroba went through three funds. So uh, there's four a, now. Four. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so there is a there's a long track record, and uh, it's also I think a, a well known uh, brand in Europe, meanwhile and globally probably also. Yes. Yes. It's it's uh, it's resonating more and more. I must say. I, I think it's it's uh, it comes both from. Uh, I mean, it's not to put laurel on, on on my head, but somehow the quality of the people and the fact that we're we are very approachable. Mm. Okay, and very easy to work with, um, but it's as well the fact that yes, we're becoming more visible with with companies where we have syndicated with other well-known VCs, and so we, we're part of that game, you know. Mm. Where now Seroba resonates in the mind of of many entrepreneurs, of many other VC funds, and even in, into the ears of many. LPs, i.e. the investors in, in, into funds, clearly. And um, we went through a phase where we were more um, tagged as Irish medical device. And now people understand that actually it's been years and years and years that we are not only biotech and medtech, and actually more biotech than medtech today, mm -hmm. European, but as well with an American footprint, because we always invested um, uh, in, uh, in the US and Canada on top of, of Europe as well. Uh, you mentioned uh, you like talking about failure stories. Uh, there's always this debate, uh, are we success buyers? Should we talk more about failure? I love the success stories. So yeah. do you, can you share one success story from your VC life? But, so, yeah, uh, there, there, are, there are a few because when you think about it, just at Cerobar, uh, when you look, I think we have 
27, if not 28 investments now. And we brought, well, when I say we, so do you see this is the VC to NSA, we say we, but we should always say the companies that we invested in and the teams of those companies brought to the market eventually uh, 10 devices and I think two drugs on market, mm-hmm. which is which is quite nice as a reward as well. And so so if I focus on, on Eoceroba, I mean, pff, I could talk for ages about example, but uh, I would say, I would think about um, a company that we have been actually supporting already at the spin-out stage from a company I think it was a conglomerate named IMI. This company names is Quanta. And Quanta is the next-gen dialysis machine delivering high-quality dialysis at the clinic and at home. And the end goal is really making sure that those uh, patients under dialysis can have a, a better life and actually even a better treatment at home than what they have today through a through, um, clinics or specialized uh, centers. So uh, we helped them spin out. We co-led years ago a Series A, which was 10 million pounds back then, okay? Mm. And uh, and Seroba worked hard alongside the other investors and the the managers to get the right vision and transformative potential for for this company uh, up to the point where, guess what? Coming from a 10 million pound Series A years ago, End of last year, they raised a Series D of $225 million, being now at commercial stage and being focused uh, on the US market on top of the, the first European countries they were uh, they were focused on. So that, that's a brilliant company. And um, and uh, I've, I've known actually the, the actual CEO for, for some time, even before Seroba. And uh, they've done a superb job and it has not been easy, far from that, I can tell you. So now... They are hopefully on the road to success with the, the means of the ambitions and becoming the, the next the next leader in the field. So we we quite proud of having been part of that of that journey. Um, I mean other other stories. So this was more medtech. Uh, if we talk more about biotech, uh, there is uh, there there was because it it was acquired uh, Covagen. So mm-hmm. Covagen, we we co-lead we co-lead a Series A extension. I think it was back in twenty. 10. Uh, and Covagen was about um, the, the potential of, of B specific, even tri specific antibodies. So, uh, a given treatment modality in the biologics area without getting too much in, into the details for the audience that is not necessarily first into this type of technicalities. But basically, it was really a big potential to go after better treatment for complex and chronic diseases. And so we, at Seroba, we provided a lot of input uh, into the indication and uh, and help in strengthening the board, the management team, bringing the right advisors. And then we were a member of, uh, of an MA steering committee because at the board level, you've got very often subcommittees, transaction mm-hmm. committees, remuneration committees. So uh, Seroba was part of the m committee and it was a competitive m and process and, and bidding. And eventually Jensen acquired the company in, in 2014. Uh, and we made a very nice return on that in terms of multiple invested capital and IRR. And so it was a, a very nice story for, for Seroba as well. And lately you've got, I, I was thinking about the company that has a great potential. And I think that uh, the valuation will probably see hopefully an uptick later this year with more clinical data. It's a company named Fusion, which is in Canada, talking about our exposure to the North American market and a Canadian company, which actually uh, listed on NASDAQ 
in June 2020. Okay, they raised uh, they raised more than 200 million dollar mm-hmm. as an IPO, and we were there at Series A and participated as well in in the Series B, and um, and this is a company into the radio pharmaceuticals targeted radio pharmaceuticals for oncology. There have been big, big acquisition in terms of, of billions being uh, being put on the table to acquire other companies before in the space. Um, and so this is a company that uh, not only we, we helped, um, but but that has a, a great potential. Um, and I think it will, it will bring very relevant uh, drugs eventually to, to the patients. We're very, uh, very hopeful on that. That sounds great. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Uh, Bruno, we had um, the political point of view, the corporate point of view. We also had uh, the point of view of uh, people investing in VCs. Let's take a little bit the entrepreneurship point of view. Uh, how do VCs operate? When um, I would, uh, when I simplify it, I mean, it sounds to me like, I create a company, I find a team, just pick my buddies from the bar next door and uh, put them in a pitch deck. Then I send it over to a venture capitalist and he wires $20 million right after reviewing the pitch deck. How is the reality? What kind of deals are VCs <laughs> looking for? Now, f- funny enough, in the tech world, not in life sciences mm-hmm. yet, I've seen very, very early stage firms that were ready in three weeks to give a bit of seed money. Really? Not, tw- not 20 million, but yes, a few hundred thousand mm-hmm. with a very standard term sheet. Okay? okay. So this kind of VC business model exists, but it's really playing the statistics. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not into the tech area to be able to judge if this is sound or not. I, I found it surprising. I mean, in my life sciences area, where again, as far as cell is concerned, it's new drugs and new devices, it is such complex uh, that um, I I don't see how we could bet so easily on anyone coming in our doors and within weeks providing a term sheet and, and let's go. Unless, unless really we monitored the guys from before, from wherever they are, we monitored the area they are entering into and we very quickly understand how great the technology and the approach is and this is something not to miss. Honestly, very rare, very rare. Because there's always the need for us because as well, we are juggling with so many opportunities in any given day on top of the portfolio, on top of relationship to investors, etc. Um, that it takes it takes some time for us to be fully comfortable and understanding what the, the business is about, what the investments are, and having more interaction with the team to make sure that as well we've got an aligned vision with them and that there could be a match. Okay, um, and 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 actually just on on the as a side note, those last two years being very virtual. Uh, proof to me that, okay, we could still do deals virtually without meeting necessarily the people face-to-face, but usually there was an element of trust and confidence in people you had known before, okay? Not only through a video screen. Um, and uh, and it makes an entire difference because honestly, you're going to focus more your attention on those compared to people you didn't know from before and you couldn't meet, okay? So th- this human factor is important, at least to me. Maybe I'm now an old part of the old generation, I don't know, but but I need and and, and I'm always asking the managers uh, and the founders make sure that 
everything is reciprocal. It's not only me being there and uh, looking at your data, your CV, your background, talking about people, about what you do and yourself, but make sure you do the same about me, about my fund and about any co-investors that, that will come because it's going to be a journey, which might be tough again, and a kind of short-term, mid-term wedding. So we better better know a bit each other before we get into bed. Okay. No, I, com I completely agree. Sorry for interrupting you. I just no, finished. I just finished the book uh, written by Jordan Belfort, The Wolf of Wall Street, The Way of the Wolf. Ah. <laughs> and it's about selling. And he pretty much says the same thing you do. It's a different, different game. But uh, he also says people tend to jump too quickly on the selling side of a deal. They want to push people through uh, through to closing uh, and forgetting about, the, he calls it information gathering uh, phase. Yeah. And you said uh, alignment of visions. So I think this is key to success to really get to know the people first, understand what they have to offer, what they need and uh, what VCs, for example, are looking for. And also on the other hand, what the companies have to offer before pushing forward to closing. Do you, yeah. do you see it similar? No, totally. And and the, what we all want to avoid is the oh shit moment in the, with the first ball meeting where we look at each other and we say, oh God, okay, that we didn't hear before. Mm. Uh, that's new. Hmm. Interesting. But it's it's too late. That's true. <laughs> you see? That's true. Uh, and, and similarly, maybe the managers will say from the behaviors of those new investors, oh my God, this is not what I expected. And and they, they need, and again, it's all about communication before the deal to make sure that everyone understand each other, have the same expectations and then it's it's easier. It's an easier flow of communication and you can deal with concerns, issues, questions much more easily. It's so much better, okay? Yeah, Rather than being too shy or too uncomfortable, raising a point, either the manager and, uh, being not comfortable because, okay, there are some hiccups. How am I going to announce that to my board and to my investors representing their the funds on the board? Uh, and uh, and, and they should, this is not the way a board should should. should be governed. I mean, the board is there first and foremost to help, to support mm -hmm. and to help. Of course, if there is major dissent and three diverging views, then we have maybe some tough decisions to make. But but it's it's really I always view that as a partnership. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the same the same way at Soroba, we think collectively when we make an investment, it's not uh, Alan, Daniel, Jennifer, or myself making an investment. It is the partnership and the investment committee deciding to decline or to agree to an investment, okay? So it's a collective responsibility. And this is the same mentality we need to have at the board level as well, okay? So it's tough, but you need to avoid the prima donnas, the big egos. I mean, you need to have people which are open-minded and, and, and um, open-minded, okay? So coming back to those entrepreneurs, I mean, taking a few folks at the bar, buddies, and uh, and writing a quick BP and asking for twenty million. Of course, this is this is not uh, how how it's uh, it's being done. Uh, but one thing for sure, and this is a piece of advice, if I may, is to make sure that you are ready before pitching to a VC. So either you've got already contacts in the VC world, which are kind of close contacts, sometimes even friends. And there you can be more open and, and say, okay, phew, I'm wondering if I should say this or this, how to present this. Is it the best story flow? Is it the key messages that are getting to the audience or not? 
well, fair enough, and you can receive some help. But don't go out there without being ready with VCs you don't know because we 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 are floated by opportunities, okay, by the day. And unfortunately, it's it's tough to hear, but somehow our job is to make sure that we can say quickly no, to be able to focus our resources on the right deals for our fund and our investors. Okay. And it is as well needed because you don't want um, to face investors that uh, don't come back to you or don't necessarily provide uh, any relevant feedback that you have to contact every three or six months to know exactly what's going on. So uh, you need to have your pitch ready and, and the attention span is usually limited. What I'm saying out of experience is that if in the 21st minutes, sometimes even less slow, so even less, less so, you do not hook the attention, you don't grab the attention of the audience, then it's going to be a tough sell, a tough sell. If you manage to grab the attention with the key messages uh, and the key data uh, to make us understand how great the business proposal and the investment thesis is, then you won. You won big time. Okay. And you need to make our life easy. Okay. Don't go into very detailed, elaborated technicals, technicalities. I mean, okay, we'll see that at the, at the next step when we will go under NDA and we'll look into data, reports. That's fine enough. Give us a big picture and the key USPs as to why you are the best in your field or you will become the best in your field. Okay. This, this, this needs preparation. This needs rehearsal. So don't come improvising and thinking, oh, pff, at the end of the day, I know my stuff and um, they'll be convinced. Get prepared. Great, great words. Uh, you mentioned that the attention span is very short. I read in an article that it's two minutes, 30 seconds that people Oof. have when they are pitching. Uh, when they don't talk, uh, the VC after two minutes, 30 seconds, the opportunity is gone. Um, okay, so that may be VCs that have got uh, their iPhone on and looking at the iPhone while the company is presenting, which mm -hmm. I resent personally. So this is where the attention span is probably even more limited. <laughs> yeah, maybe with social media these days in the tech world. Um, let me ask you one question, Bruno. Uh, you mentioned that on one hand, it's important to understand the VC and the alignment of visions. And on the other hand, be prepared for pitching. And from my experience, I very often see that uh, companies like to skip this preparation phase and directly jump uh, with a not ready pitch deck into the first pitching. How should organizations or like companies uh, tackle this problem on one hand, getting to know the VC before pitching? And on the other hand, uh, pitching only when they are ready to a VC? How do you see this uh, information gathering phase in the VC? Uh, in, in an ideal world, they should try and socialize as much as they can by mm -hmm. attending conferences uh, and and um, making sure they can meet some of the VCs, other directly, other through an N plus one, a common relationship, so that um, they can get access to those VCs and be able to discuss informally uh, to get the first few feedbacks. Okay, and I think this this is probably ideal, especially for first time teams in a, in a startup that never raised VC money before, and who are really asking themselves, well, who are those guys? How can I approach them? I mean, we are approachable. I mean, every mm -hmm. VC has got a website. You can you can access us easily. 
but best is to try and socialize before through a more informal setting. And conferences are great for that, actually. We always have parties thrown after the conference here and there. So get ready for your liver to suffer a bit with many <laughs> drinks. But uh, but it's um, it, it brings a different flavor. And I think it, it helps a lot. But obviously, it's like anywhere in this world, in any sector, right? you, you will face people that are just very closed, not very nice, no funny, and I don't want to share views, assuming they have any. Uh, but so those ones, you get rid of them. And at least by default, you know that you won't work with them. Okay. Mm. And focus on the rest. It's it's actually a, a good piece of, of due diligence probably early on. So it's not harmful to talk to VCs uh, outside the pitching settings. So it's no, uh, okay. no, 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 not at all, uh, and, and surely not not to me. And and very often, well, I, well, okay, I, I need I need to have a, a an investment opportunity that is appealing to me, okay, and I need to sense that okay, the guys can be trusted and and I like the attitude. But very often uh, during the entire year, I'm I'm helping uh, startups founders. CEOs uh, in providing my opinion and just making sure they understand it's one opinion among many others. Okay, I'm not mad to think I've got the truth and I know everything. Far from that, but at least I'm I'm monitoring, I'm pursuing a conversation, and I, I think they probably enjoy it because um, because they they receive the feedback. They sleep on it, and sometimes they just think, "Okay, well, yeah, it's one feedback, but it's it's not it's not what we want to hear, or it's not relevant." Fair mm -hmm. enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not there to decide or to make sure I'm the right. I have the right thing to say necessarily, but yeah, that's uh, it's it's visible. It's visible, and so you see, it's all about building trust, confidence, creating a real relationship, and it makes things much much more easy when it is prime time for financing. Because when they come to me, I mean, 80% of the job will have been done. Mm -hmm. No, that's true. So getting to know people first, but when you flip the switch and say, now I'm pitching because I'm fundraising, then companies should be prepared. Yes. And um, there is another thing that I wanted to hear your opinion on. So it was years, years ago when uh, I thought I had a great opportunity. And uh, it's like uh, finding friends from a bar, putting them at the pitch deck mm -hmm. and then doing the mathematics behind it and say, okay, uh, anybody who invests a million in this company or 5 million um, can get back after five years, 10 million. So let's say 2x. Okay. So 2x. Um, and um, I tried to talk to a VC and she smiled and said, yeah, come back when you have a 10x Uh, opportunity 2x is not enough for us. And <laughs> lately, I read an article. I read an article on uh, the internet uh, where a family office stated that meanwhile it's a 100x opportunity that VCs are looking for. Why are these metrics so important in the VC world? So, okay, so 2x, 10x, 100x. I mean. I will let those pe those people maybe react and and tell us where they're coming from. Um, at the end of the day, what is true is that when you consider any VC portfolio, mm -hmm. you will have inevitably failures. Okay, that's inevitable. Uh, and even in the case of successful companies operationally delivering, sometimes the paycheck at the end at IPO time, post IPO, or at M&A mm -hmm. is not as high as would have been expected by the investors or by the managers and the co-founders. Well, so be it. So it means that overall, when you want to return 
with your fund, let's say 3x to your investors in the fund, well, you need to make sure that it is probability weighted somehow. So I understand the comment, which is bring me a 10x opportunity as an investment thesis, and then we'll talk. But I mean, realistically, I'd rather have a portfolio well-balanced with lots of two, three, four X because we will have done a good job on the investment thesis before the investments and we'll have built the company together to for, for risk mitigation and being able to address any issues later on during the life of the investment, rather than relying on a 10x or 20x investment in my 10, 12, 15 portfolio companies while the rest is failing. You see, it's, it's a dangerous game. The, the number of game is, is always a dangerous game. And so um, it's all to me about maximizing, maximizing, sorry, the potential of success of an investment. And of course, I mean, it needs to be two, three, four X down the road to make sure that I'm bringing enough money to my investors and that my investors are, are okay. But I'm not going to ask for 10 X uh, in a pitch because honestly, it's a bit ludicrous. Okay. Now, the difference will be if you consider maybe the tech and life sciences. I mean, the tech world for sure, because somehow you have got business models which are less capital intensive. You can actually reach global scale and have amazing valuations where, okay, the early investors will probably make 30, 40, 50, maybe 100, I don't know, X. But it's it's different business models, okay? Um, and and even in the tech world, you've, you've, we always talk about the successes, okay, and the massive returns, but we forget about, unfortunately, all the dead bodies lay, laying around. So um, I would put a big grain of salt into this kind of, uh, of feedback, but I can see where they're coming from. Yeah. But the, the entrepreneur shouldn't be... Uh, uh, shocked or, or afraid or shy, saying, "Oh shit! I mean, there's no way we're going to provide 10x. Uh, what are we going to say? No, don't. At least with me, <laughs> don't worry. I mean, I, I will know the hypothesis. I will make my own, and we'll see where that goes." Yeah, I think uh, many of the stories on podcasts that they hear from uh, business angel-like investors who invested in Facebook. Uh, I think Gary Vaynerchuk is one of those uh, who made good who made good money with, with Facebook Uber investments, and maybe life science uh, takes a little bit differently. Uh, I like fairy tales, and uh, the great thing with fairy tales is uh, that it's nice storytelling. Yeah. And it's very engaging. You have the ups and downs and characters who evolve and need to go to failures together. And at the end of the day, uh, mostly a prince and a princess marry. And then the end of the story is, and they lived happily ever after. And nobody ever told how this happily ever after looked like. Yeah. Uh, can you shine a little bit of light uh how the happily ever after looks like with a VC once the deal is closed. Uh, is it that way that the VC just walks away and says, okay, I deployed my money and that's it for me and uh, I don't have any no, more questions? No, but I, I, actually, um, you might think as well in terms of the storytelling, who will kiss the frog to become <laughs> a prince, okay? Is it the VC having to kiss founders and managers or the managers having to kiss the VCs, which might be uh, frogs or thoughts, okay? But this is maybe for, for another day. Um, no, of course, it's, it's just, I mean, signing um, the legal documentation for first fundraising is only the beginning of the story, okay? Mm -hmm. Now we're talking real. Now we're talking about execution and we're talking about how good of a match we will be 
together at the governance level to make sure we can help and build together this great opportunity. And this is where expectations will be met or fail, clearly. So it's, it's the beginning of a journey. But again, if things have been done hastily, without the right question asked, without the right analysis done, well, you are bound to have surprises and probably nasty surprises. If everyone has done a proper work at knowing each other, at understanding the business, at aligning visions, it will go better. It's not to say that there will not be tough times because again, inevitably, this is the life of the startups, okay? It's very rare, very rare that a plan is being executed uh, as expected, okay? Without hiccups, without competition emerging, without data, which are not the one we expected, without people leaving the company to go to whoever and having to be replaced. Mm -hmm. Yes, all of this happens. All of this happens. Uh, but... Um, but it's, it's again, it's all about anticipation, and it's it's the time spent before the um, the signing of the legals for fundraising that probably will direct uh, the, the track into which you will embark for this journey. Very important. And sometimes you 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 see things coming from far away. You want people, but you say, you know what? There's no ideal deals. So. Let's let's get to work on it. Let's sign the this fundraising, and we'll figure out. And there's a bit of that as well. You know, you mm -hmm. don't know exactly yeah, how it will how it will fare. And for me, this is the excitement as well. I mean, if everything was a stepwise process already cooked and digested ahead, I think I would be so bored. I would have done something else of my life. <laughs> I mean, I like I like the. I like the fact that we have to renew our thinking. We have to be always open-minded to look at what's going on in the in the in the field, in the areas, sometimes in very different areas, to be able to feed into the technologies and the programs, uh, to hear very interesting people that we want to add at the governance into the management. I mean, it's 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 great actually, but you have to adapt. You have to adapt, and you have to have a, a strong heart and, and strong guts as well. Not to say anything about any other part of our anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so after the the investment is done, there will be further interactions with uh, with the venture capitalists. Um, what help does can venture capitalists provide um, during the tough times of uh, of the company? Like you said, people are leaving, and um, or fall on rounds must be signed or fundraising must happen IPOs what's the role of VCs in in, in all these uh, problematic areas that happen in the daily life of an of a company? So, uh, the, the the rule I'm trying to impose myself, well, there, there are a few rules, huh? but it's, it's come from experience, not dogma. First, I'm not a manager. There's a red line not to cross, okay? Uh, I'm an investor, so I have two hats, shareholder and usually board member, being property director or observer. So this needs to be taken into account because I'm there to help and support. I'm not there to decide and do in lieu of the management, very important. Um, the second aspect is not to raise anxiety levels unnecessarily, okay? You can, I would say, I would call it poke people and, and raise their heads saying, well, guys, be careful because at that speed, you have a wall in front of you, so you better watch out. Um, but uh, there is enough reasons to, I mean, be, be troubled or face concerns 
that you don't need to raise anxiety levels unnecessarily. Okay, this is a second rule that uh, I'm always trying to, to impose myself. And so here is where communication happens. And the best thing is when you can anticipate issues and you find you have already solutions when the issues pop up. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then it's a matter of deciding which alternative, which solutions you want to, to go after. Um, but uh, it's as well being there as a sparring partner, being elaborated enough to listen to the to the concerns, to the issues, listen to the management, and bring your good advice. And good advice is not, oh, I've got a great genius idea that no one has heard of and please do it because I'm a genius. No, not at all. I will always explain the context and where this advice is coming from, what I've seen and experienced before. And uh, very often it is the case that, oh, I'm thinking about uh, an expert in such or such field that will be probably helpful in having a second opinion from so that you better know exactly what we need to do. You see, so there is there needs to be this kind of dialogue, and and often, and this is why as well VC is is best when it is more local because you can talk easily and meet people more easily. You know, uh, you've got a call from a CEO, or you calling the CEO because you've got uh, an idea or concern, a question, or some something that came through to you, and we think, shit, I need to to talk to my CEO about that. The next morning, you can have breakfast with him. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's a, a good informal setting to put things on the table, to discuss, and to share views. So um, this is where, where we, we can be helpful, is bringing the experience, bringing the network, and being there, not to judge and raise level of anxiety or impose anything, but really as a support and to help. But easier said than done, because this is where you need to have like-minded people and being able to, to work together on that. Sometimes the agenda is fair and it's human nature, but this is a different story. That's true. That's true. Human nature plays always an important role in business and it's very often underrated. Um, I have another question, Bruno, uh, about a topic that I heard in the life science industry the first time when I was on the university. Um, investment was more taught uh, coming from the Warren Buffett approach. When we deploy capital in a company, it stays there forever and our preferred investing period is forever. And in the VC world uh, at Nabliva, where uh, the first time I met VCs, uh, I heard the term exit so that VCs yeah. need to exit the story. Yeah. Why is that so important in the VC world? Why can't VCs act like Warren Buffett? <laughs> Just to put Hello, the money I would say it. that some VCs will be more patient, mm-hmm. okay? Um, because they have an, uh, an evergreen, open-ended fund. Um, and maybe they have the, the people with the, the kind of mindset that matches this kind of, of more long-term patient views. Uh, but it's true that a classic VC I mean, we'll be on the road every three, four, five years to raise a new fund. And when you raise a new fund, guess what? You have to talk about your experience, your track record, the other funds. And this is where exits and good exits makes a difference. Okay. Uh, And sometimes people that you will meet are more keen simply on the financials. They want to know if you made 10, 15, 20, 30% IRR or even more. Okay, in some cases, sometimes we'll say, okay, financials are one thing, but actually tell me tell me the stories into which you invest, why they were cutting edge, 
where did you help in terms of society, patients? How did it work out? And it depends upon who you're, you're talking to. But the, it's a fact. I mean, you need to show that you did good deals. And the best thing is cash on cash, where are the exits? And this is why we have, as soon as we receive an opportunity, the exit in mind. Is this something that will be IPO-able in a few years? Is this something that the pharma industry has its attention onto, okay, so that there will be collaborations and maybe acquisitions? Because if we don't think about exits and if we let it go, well, not only there will be more failures, probably, by being too lenient and not focused enough, but as well, guess what? We will not be able to raise another fund. We'll be out of business. That's it. And, and this is where it's important to think about the innovation for entrepreneurs that they have in their hand. Is it really made for VC capital? Is it really made for VC funding? Is this really what they want to, to go after? And maybe what type of investors they want to bring in? Okay. Sometimes they are better off having, but it's, it's hard. And again, we talk about arbitrage. It's not necessarily the best thing for those high net worth and family office, but those those persons will be more maybe more patient, or more than maybe. Okay. To the point where unfortunately, okay, if this is where maybe some startups and managers will say, you know what? Poof, it's a billionaire. He's got enough money, we'll always back up. So we can think about restarts, reinventing ourselves if we fail, doesn't matter. And we don't have to acquired or go into IPO, let's continue our life. It's 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 good enough. Well, it's not the same drive. Clearly, uh, not sure it's for the best either, honestly. Because again, it's such complex and competitive, you really need to be totally focused and then think about what you're doing day and night to deliver and be always at the forefront because uh, otherwise Will have you will have bad surprises with competition coming ahead or things that are badly executed. So yeah, it's it's being driven by that, clearly. Some will say it's uh, it's bad, but it's not neither good or bad, it's a fact, it's a reality. Mm-hmm. You need to be aware of this. And guess what? It works out. It works out pretty well for for all the parties when it's a success. And we do it again and again. So it's just the rule of the game, <laughs> bad yeah. of the game. It is. It is, clearly. But to think about the investors in those funds, if yourself you were an investor in a fund, I mean, you would like to see some returns out of it and not have to wait 15, 20 years for that, right? Because otherwise you would say, well, why am I doing that? Okay, maybe it's for the good of humanity. Maybe I'm helping indirectly new drugs and devices to come to market, to come to patients. But still, these financial aspects, a lot of, of, of investors into funds have it in mind. So the current, I, I read, um, I think it was in November last year that Sequoia uh, set up a new fund with uh, $9 billion that uh, intends to invest longer over uh, several decades because they think that um, those disruptive innovations sometimes need not only three to five years to come to fruition, they need 10, 20 or 30 years. Uh, do you see a trend on the venture capital market that this thinking that Sequoia uh, presented last year is also taking hold in Europe? Personally, I didn't come across that in Europe. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't come across that in our in our field. Okay, I mean a twenty year or more type of funnel investment horizon is more for infrastructure, mm-hmm. <laughs> not not for for R and D type projects in uh, in uh, in biotech, medtech, or even tech. Um, but what one would need to probably look into this in more details because I suspect that even if the fund is being kept open longer, they're probably bringing some cash over the years to investors so that the investors are not sitting and waiting for 15, 20 years or more before seeing the green back. So it's probably a mix of investment where they allow themselves a longer period of time. There is another element, but it's, it's going to be maybe a bit boring for the audience, which has to be taken into account. It's the management fee. I don't know if the investors in a fund will like to see the fund managers taking management fees for so long out of the money they're bringing into, into a fund. So. I think that there's more into that story that needs more, more details and more mm-hmm. insight to really understand how that how that works. It might be that there's no more, no more management fee after year 10 anyway, okay, and they still work on the portfolio, I would say for free, but in exchange of maybe a higher carried, I, I don't know. But there, mm-hmm. there must be something in terms of economics to make it work because it's not philanthropy, right? That's true, but I didn't. I just read the press release, and not uh, there were not much details about the metrics. Uh, Bruno, are there any questions open that you would like me to ask? Uh, we covered, I think, a lot with the topic we we have. I don't know if if the audience maybe can jump in and ask questions either in writing or, or live, which I'm more more than happy to uh, to answer to. Even if if it's it has been now what an hour and a half. Hour and a half, yes. Wow. Time, okay. time, time flies when you have yeah. fun. <laughs> but it's, flies, yeah, so. it's, it was a good conversation. Actually, I didn't start the time uh, passing, <laughs> clearly. But I think, I think we covered a lot already, honestly. So uh, so I am personally more than happy to to receive, uh, after this podcast, any, any questions. Uh, I'm totally open to that. You can reach me through LinkedIn very easily or via the Cerebral website, Cerebral Life Sciences website. You go on the team page and you click on my name and there will be a message sent, sent to me and, uh, and we can have a further talk. And uh, if we can have a face-to-face discussion as well, that's my preferred route after those two years of, of painful um, distanciation and uh, and virtual world. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's can really meet again globally. Uh, it uh, is also for me necessary, like you mentioned before, that uh, probably we are from an old generation uh, that uh, loves meeting uh, in person. Uh, Bruno, if you agree, I will put your contact data in the description of the podcast. Sure, sure. With pleasure. The articles. Um, I would like to thank you very much for your time and for giving uh, great insights into the VC world. And Well, many thanks for the invitation. It was a great moment and uh, I liked it a lot. I hope there will be more of those. Thank you, Christian. Okay. And thank you thank you to the audience for, for those who attended during this, uh, this podcast. Thank you. Have a, great, have a great evening. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.